Good morning from Washington, D.C. at a solemn time in the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, we learned that the death toll in our nation in only 90 days has surpassed the total of American military deaths in the 20-year Vietnam War. This pandemic has forced two parts of our nation into overdrive. The economic impact has been tremendous. However, the medical impact has been the primary driver of that and every other action we've taken for the last two months. We've seen tremendous national sacrifice and heroism in our medical response to the virus and obviously expect that to continue. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC. Thank you for joining us for another virtual roundtable. Today, we discuss the future of American health care in the age of COVID-19. Regardless of politics, scientists, doctors, and politicians mostly agree that our country was simply not prepared for this pandemic, medically or logistically. We face systemic challenges as well. African Americans and Hispanic Americans, whose health disparities have been discussed for decades, have suffered disproportionate losses at the hands of COVID-19. Rural and urban disparities in care have been brought into even more stark relief, and nursing home regulations and best practices have come into question following massive infection rates. Like any crisis, advances have been made quickly. Telemedicine has provided millions with care in their homes. For many, it has expanded the definition of what is possible in their health care. For the most part, American people traditionally resistant to authority have flattened the curve, facing quarantine with a sense of resolve thanks to a public health service that has made the message of recovery clear, absolute, and accessible. With today's uncertainty in mind, we look to the future. What changes will come from this? What changes must come? In the near term, will we be able to create a stockpile of personal protective equipment for the likely second wave of infections in the fall and winter? How will President Trump fulfill his promise to completely cover uninsured Americans? Where will the trade-offs come in decreasing virus exposure while restarting the economy? In 1942, the report that eventually formed the backbone of England's National Health Service noted, quote, a revolutionary moment in the world's history is a time for revolutions, not for patching. What will our moment change in the long term? Will we be better prepared for future pandemics? Will a record number of unemployed Americans cause a rethinking of employer-based health insurance? How will we solve the medical gaps based on race or those of geography? Coming off a 10-year debate on the Affordable Care Act, where does Congress fit into the discussion? Today, we have a group whose experience spans the breadth of those questions. They've served not only in Congress, attempting to respond to this crisis, but in the same halls of medicine where their former colleagues formed the front lines. Congressman Ami Barra represents California's 7th District. He's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Dr. Barra also has 20 years of medical experience and served as Sacramento County's Chief Medical Officer. Congressman Larry Bouchon represents the 8th District of Indiana. First elected to the House of Representatives in 2010, he serves on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Dr. Bouchon was a practicing physician and surgeon specializing in cardiothoracic surgery. Moderating our call today is Dr. Charles Bustani, a former congressman from Louisiana and prominent heart surgeon. During his 12 years in Congress, Dr. Bustani served on the Committee on Ways and Means, and for 14 years, Dr. Bustani had a private practice specializing in thoracic and cardiovascular surgery in Lafayette, Louisiana. So this is our medical team for today. Here to help them provide the diagnosis and the course of treatment is Dr. Bustani. Congressman? Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for the introductions of all of us. And um, I'm going to serve as moderator today um, as we look at these fundamental questions. And um, clearly our U.S. health system is under significant stress. Uh, there are lessons to be learned, uh, issues to be considered as we go forward. Let me just offer a couple of key points, um, and then I will turn to uh, Congressman Barra and Congressman Bouchon to offer some opening comments, and we'll follow through with questions. But to sort of frame the conversation, the U.S. healthcare system is a $3.6 trillion industry in the United States, representing nearly 18% of gross domestic product. Um, 
So far, the uh, assistance provided by Congress through appropriations has been $175 billion um, as hospitals and physicians and nurses across the country have, have uh, struggled to cope with the, the ongoing pandemic. Uh, roughly, our healthcare system is, is a, it's basically a hybrid system between uh, federal reimbursement systems and private insurance. And by some estimates, it's a roughly, roughly a 50-50 split between government and private sector. Uh, other, other data suggest um, different ratios, but it's roughly in that range. Interestingly, I was reading the Financial Times this morning and noted that the, uh, the U.S. gross domestic product figures for quarter, the first quarter of this year came in. We all know uh, we, that this, this number was roughly just under 5% in decline. But there was an interesting tidbit in this article today in the Financial Times. It showed that the decline in healthcare spending, um, 40%, uh, 40% of it, uh, the decline in overall consumption was a decline in healthcare spending. Forty percent of overall consumption decline was healthcare a decline in healthcare spending, which sort of gives a magnitude of what we're dealing with just on the healthcare side of this. So with that, let me turn to Ami Vera uh, from uh, California, and uh, uh, Congressman Vera, why don't you make Give us about five minutes of opening comments and observations, and then we'll, then we'll run over to Congressman Bouchon, and then we'll start with Q&A. So, Congressman Vera? Thanks, Charles. Um, you know, in my eight years in Congress, you know, on the Foreign Affairs Committee, you know, pandemic preparedness and global health security has been one of my focus areas, and, you know, have, um, you know traveled to West Africa, you know, during and post the Ebola crisis in 2014. It was trying to get into the Congo, um, and it's a, it's a small circle of folks that focus in on this uh, um, subject. So we were tipped off early in um, January that something was was going on. You know, close to Tony Fauci and and Director um, Redluck at at the um, CDC, but in truth, none of us um, saw exactly what was was, was coming. Yeah, you know, we understood the virus was going to be here. We now know it was at least circulating um, in Santa Clara in California in February 6th. I bet if we do additional autopsy data, we'll find that, you know, there, that it was circulating earlier than that. And I, I do hope we go back. The reason why I frame it that way is none of us knows exactly um, what this virus will be doing um, through the summer. You know, most of us in healthcare expect to see a resurgence in the, the fall and, and a, a second spike. And I think it is incumbent upon us as, you know, Americans have stepped up all across this country to, to adhere to the stay at home order and try to flatten the curve and get ahead of this. We need to look at this first phase of um, COVID-19 and uh, do a deep dive in lessons learned, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and then we very much have to start thinking about, you know, and with the expectation of a resurgence in the fall, what are the things that we have to do to be prepared for that resurgence? Um, so those are short-term goals vis-a-vis -vis the, the healthcare system. You know, here in California, you know, we did um, flatten the curve fairly quickly. The hospitals shut down elective procedures. They created capacity, um, and we avoided um, some of 
what um, we saw in, in Charles' home state of Louisiana or New York City. Um, and we are starting to reopen and do elective procedures. That came with a huge economic cost to the, the, the healthcare system. And, you know, I, I do worry about some of the um, health costs as well, because, you know, we call them elective procedures. Um, they're not really elective procedures. They're necessary procedures that, you know, we can schedule at a particular time. So as we work through that backlog, there is a healthcare consequence of delaying some of this necessary care. I also worry about, um, you know, the folks that were not visiting their doctors who have diabetes, um, cardiac conditions, um, other health, chronic health, medical conditions, and what was the healthcare consequence of not getting that regular care because either out of fear of going to visit their doctor or um, for some other reason. So I think we've got to assess that as we start to gradually open as well. Um, that said, you know, Charles touched on the, the unemployment numbers, and, you know, we have a system of, you know, in the commercial markets, most folks get their, you know, a, a lot of individuals get their health care and health insurance through their employer. With this large number of folks who have now become unemployed, you know, I think that's going to put some stresses on um, the, the Medicaid um, system and really disrupts this traditional model of commercial health insurance. I think we're going to have to think about what that looks like as the federal government really becomes a much larger player um, in covering health care. And what's the political dynamics of that look like in states? In California, we've seen 60,000 more people sign up for the Affordable Care Act, um, and we continue to expect to see many more sign up. And part of that is we opened up enrollment um, in that case. Other states haven't opened their, their enrollment and you know, how does that healthcare inequity play out and where does the funding come from? Um, and then lastly, I think we have to think about this virus in the context of um, the next two years. So I don't think there will be, you know, most, most of us feel like the, the virus will be circulating with us until we have an effective vaccine and have the ability to, you know, distribute that vaccine and get to a level of herd immunity um, in the population. Now, it'd be one thing if it was just the United States that was dealing with this, but it's not one country. It's the entire planet at the same time. So you know, one thing we're urging the um, administration to, to do, we do think it was a, a big mistake to not necessarily withdraw from the WHO, although we haven't filled our executive board position, um, but to withdraw the, uh, or withhold the funding. I'm glad that Secretary Pompeo is starting to push to, to, to refund fund um, certain portions of it, but absent um, U.S. global leadership, which traditionally we, we have, I think this will be a much slower response. Um, we're also the largest funder of, of, you know, many of these international organizations, and now's the time not for us to be withdrawing. Um, now's the time for us to be stepping up and leading this global challenge. You know, we also have um, the CDC, which is the leading public health organization in the world and has unique talents. Um, the funding of the NIH is, you know, head and shoulders above the cumulative research funding in the rest of the world. So we need um, the NIH to be leading this global conversation of research for a vaccine, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, on the global health side, because we know the vaccine will be the, the gold standard, we have to start participating in, in um, 
thinking about you know, how are we going to scale up potentially the 6 billion doses of vaccine? How are we going to distribute that, that, that vaccine? Like, is it each country for itself to the highest bidder? I think that would be a mistake. I think you know, we should um, come up with an international framework. Um, are the manufacturers going to create this vaccine at profit? Are we going to set a price point and know that this is in all of our interest to, to mass produce this vaccine? The number of black vials that we're going to need expose um, real supply chain issues. The number of syringes um, potentially that, that you will need. So we've got to start solving those supply chain logistics right now and building up that stockpile. And then lastly, the global health workforce that we will need, as well as the domestic public health workforce that we will need to not just do contact tracing and, and try to contain the virus as we start to open up, but also um, to distribute that vaccine and get folks vaccinated. So these are all things that we are thinking through right now, you know, both as we come out of the stay-at-home orders, as we look at the fall, but then also look at the next two years and think about how we're going to get out of this. And you know, lastly, we don't know who will come up that, with that vaccine first. You know, it's as likely that it will be a non-U.S. Um, um, vaccine that becomes the, the, the most efficacious one as opposed to you know, the, the United States coming up with that vaccine. So I'll stop with that. Well, thank you for those comments. And um, let's go to uh, Congressman Larry Bouchon next uh, for some opening comments. Larry? Yeah, well, thanks, Charles, and, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's good to hear from Ami. Ami and I have worked together on uh, quite a number of health care issues, and I think um, we'll continue to do that going forward. I think he made a lot of great points. I, a couple of things I think that um, I, all of us know is clearly we weren't prepared for this type of pandemic. I mean, it's a unprecedented unprecedented circumstance, although it's not that we didn't have a warning uh, that this could happen. Even uh, back in 2005, President Bush gave a speech related to pandemics, uh, you know, bringing this up and uh, basically a warning to the to the world that we need to be better prepared. I think in the, in the United States, the one thing I'd like to say, first of all, is kudos to our healthcare workers. I've worked with these people on the front lines in regular uh, health care, and people really have stepped up in trying circumstances. Uh, fortunately, in southwest Indiana, an area of Indiana I represent, we have not had the dramatic um, problems that New York City or Louisiana uh, in New Orleans have had. We've had a fairly small amount of, of cases overall, although not zero, because I primarily represent rural America. So. Rural America, I think, has um, been a little better off because of the natural uh, distancing uh, that you have in place versus large urban centers, but certainly not immune. A couple of things on the healthcare in the healthcare space, I think that are uh, that I talk, have been talking about for years and years is that you know the, the overall healthcare economy is really not a true free market economy. It's not really consumer driven. It's price fixed both by the federal government and private insurers on the reimbursement side. Their third-party um, payer system is something that has been a challenge, I think, because there's, we've created a disconnect between the person receiving the service and the people at the other end paying for it. Uh, and there's just a disconnect there, and there's no really um, true free market economy. And where does that come into play into this? All the supply chain issues 
that we've had had across the country at various in various hospital systems with you know exclusive contractual relationships between suppliers and large health systems versus rural hospitals that are, have a harder time competing for PPE uh, versus the larger health systems and I've seen that in my own district um, so I mean we need to look at, at that more broadly how do how do we uh, as a country, make sure that the entire healthcare system, regardless of where you are, urban, rural, whether you're, it's a large healthcare system or it's small, um, have access to a, a, an adequate supply chain. And I think we've seen seen stress uh, related to that, particularly in my district. My rural hospitals really struggled to get the personal protective equipment, and and, um, and then you add on top of that, eliminating all the elective, so-called elective procedures, and this. As Ami pointed out, they're not really elective; they're necessary, and the lost revenue from that just compounded uh, the problem. The cost to the system in general, as everyone knows, we spend more per capita on healthcare in the United States than any other country in the world, and and I think we need to work towards trying to address that. And I, I believe uh, that there is a firm government role in healthcare, but I also believe in a strong private sector component in the healthcare insurance space. And uh, I mean, I may have some slight difference of, of view on that, but I do think we need to make sure that our federal healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the VA, and the Native American healthcare system are strengthened uh, for the 21st century and bring them into the 21st century and make sure they're strong for the people they, uh, they serve. But also, we do need to revisit uh, the employer-sponsored healthcare and whether that is the best way to provide private health care coverage to our citizens. And I think uh, all of us know that that came into place post-World War II era, um, and, and uh, it really needs to be discussed logically. How do we provide private health care insurance to citizens and have that be portable if they lose their job or if they go from job to job? Those are legitimate uh, discussions that need to be uh, put in place. And we need we just need to get the cost down, and that's why um, you know at the things you're seeing related to telehealth medicine uh, during this crisis are really promising, I think, because the federal government has looked at the regulations that are in place that are inhibiting the ability of the private sector uh, to expand telehealth to patients. Um, and when you remove some of the government barriers, you can see it's expanding. Uh, dramatically, and I've talked to healthcare providers, and 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 what does this do? It increases access to healthcare, and it can help decrease cost because you don't need to now maybe transport everybody to see their doctor. And you might be able to do it in a more effective and efficient way. Uh, once we deal with the connectivity issues in rural America for broadband, once we deal with the liability issues, and of course, how do we reimburse providers for telehealth medicine when traditionally in healthcare you you put your hands on the patient and you do the examination in person. Um, there's just a, a ton of issues out there that this is going to bring up to the forefront. Uh, but the main thing, and I'll say this finally, is that we absolutely need to have an assessment of our readiness uh, for another pandemic. Uh, if the virus comes back in the fall or in the, in the ne next spring, we need to be better prepared. Uh, and we need to uh, connect the dots to make sure that all areas of America, in urban, rural areas, have access to the medical supplies and medical treatment that are necessary to take care of our people. I, I do want to comment on the on the World Health Organization. 
I'm speaking for me personally. I've never uh, really agreed with a lot of the approach. I think uh, uh, it, I do think it is necessary. I do think we should be we should be participating, and I, I, I do think it's fair to have an assessment of the WHO from the U.S.'s perspective. But I do think we should participate in that and be a leader in the WHO. But from my perspective, it's it's been uh, uh, I don't want to say anti. American approach many times, but um, a lot of the data that comes out of there is uh, is negative towards the United States. Historically, it's not just this episode. And, and, you know, since we provide a lot of the funding and the input, I think we should have more of a say. Um, and I think we will need to have some assessment of uh, the response, uh, both by the WHO and, honestly, by our own government to uh, how we responded to the virus. As Ami mentioned, uh, we know early January there were there were rumblings, uh, and then uh, when did the virus actually come to the United States? Uh, what could we have done better? Um, and those things are all going to have to be looked at. So I'll end with that and uh, take questions. Thanks, Charles. Thank you very much, Larry. Both of you have given terrific opening comments um, with a lot to discuss. Um, one quick point, Larry, you did mention the uh, telemedicine, and one of the things we're hearing from a number of folks in the provider community is that um, if, if the telemedicine provisions could be expanded to audio uh, only, that would take care of the needs of some a significant part of the, the population out there that don't have ready access to broadband and to um, you know computers and so forth. Um, and so this might be a gap to, for you guys to consider as you're thinking about the next round of assistance, and that is uh, could telephone consultations be covered under the, the telemed telemedicine expansion? But um, that's just something to consider and an editorial remark on my part. But let me just say this. Both of you touched on the complexity of this just in the healthcare space. And how do you look at the cascading elements of this uh, throughout our healthcare system, whether, uh, whether it's just dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic or the implications for, for patients with non-COVID-19 related illnesses and the impact, the cost, and so forth, it seems to me you got to break it down to the immediate response and then start addressing these other issues in a systematic way. And I think both of you will provide leadership there. But how do you, how do you want to? How would you start thinking about? The, the triaging, the key points of stress, and how to sequentially work through them in a way that makes sense. And how how could the two of you guide your your non medical colleagues in Congress on ways to think about that? Uh, it's really a broad, tough question in a sense to answer, mm -hmm. but um, would love to have your insights uh, on how to think about this and how to how to how to educate your colleagues in Congress on this. Well, I'll, I'll start. Yeah, go for it. I'll start, and I'll be brief, Charles. I mean, you know, and Ami will probably say the same, is that, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize, I mean, we do in Congress, that the healthcare space is roughly one-sixth of the U.S. economy, and, and everything is interconnected, and we're seeing that um, through healthcare. I mean, every citizen is impacted in some way by the healthcare supply chain, by uh, healthcare itself, 
for your, yourself as an individual or a family member. And I think this is going to this incident of the coronavirus is really going to make people go. Really, I see how everything's interconnected now, and why, you know, we we really need to look at the health healthcare in general, and, and see, you know, how we can do a better job of having a more uniform system that is less costly. I mean the the I mean I'm just speaking for myself, but the the exclusive contracts here and there the the exclusive, um, uh, uh, you know, panels of physicians that you might be able to see versus you can't go across town and see other doctors because they're not under the same uh, contract with your health insurance provider. I mean, all of these all of these things I think we need to take a look at, and it needs to be more consumer-driven. The, the, the individual consumer needs to have more input in, into how the healthcare system uh, runs more input into the pricing and put price pressure on the on the system overall to to compete. And what I see, what I've seen since I've been in Congress is we actually mostly do the opposite at in, in the, at the governmental level and even in the private sector level is a lot of the things we do I consider anti-competitive and don't and, and we're never going to get the the cost down. So I I think we need to have the top to bottom look at the system, you know. Who pays for it, I think, is, you know, is one of the discussions we've had, and, like, we'll, we'll have some disagreements on that uh, about whether it should be paid for by the government, whether it should be a combination of government, private sector, or the private sector more than the government. But that's not really the crux of the issue, I, I think. The crux of the issue is the complicated interconnections in the in the healthcare space that make it so costly and the anti-competitiveness uh, of the system as a whole that it doesn't matter who pays for it, we're not going to be able to pay those bills if we don't address that. And uh, I think this this situation is really going to make everybody take a look at that. And I don't think it'll be that partisan. I'll be honest with you on most of this. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And, and I would agree with you on that. that. Yeah, Ami. Yeah, I, yeah. I I think Larry and I think about this um, fairly similarly. Like I I don't want the government to be in charge of how we deliver that care. I think if we allow the doctors, the hospitals to, to figure it out, we'll figure out how to do it in a more efficient way with better outcomes. Um, we, we can debate how we fund that health care coverage, et cetera. But I do think you know, if the competition was based on quality and outcomes as opposed to, to um, what you have to pay for it, I, I think that would be better. I also think if patients could stick with their providers, you know, as opposed to every couple of years, if your employer switches insurance company, you're moving into a different network and you never really establish that relationship with your doctor and your hospital and system, you know, that adds extra cost to this. So I, I do think this virus, um, you know, in many ways has truly disrupted our healthcare delivery and there'll be immense pressure to try to rebuild what we had before. I think that would be a mistake. I think in a bipartisan way, we should be forward-looking and think about, okay, what would serve America's patients in, in the best possible way, delivering the most efficient health care um, with the, the best outcomes? And I, I think we have to make sure we don't think about this as one-size-fits-all because, you know, I, I, my district is a, a largely urban district that has, you know, lots of doctors and hospitals, you know, we'll get through this a little bit easier than, 
probably Larry's district, but, you know, rural hospitals are under stress right now. There are many more, um, I imagine, rural America solo practitioners that are being hit extremely hard by this. And, you know, how we address and help the, the big multi-specialty groups get through this is going to be different than how we help um, the, the small solo practitioner or small group practices. Um, and that is an area that I think we can find some bipartisan dialogue in you know, their necessary care in many parts of, of America. So, you know, how we have this, this um, discussion is, is, is going to be different. But the challenge for the federal government is we often legislate in a one-size-fits-all way, and we don't do nuance very well. I think this is a place where the, the doctors in Congress can step up and you know, try to craft and, and lead our colleagues through what is going to be a complicated um, you know, situation as we come out of this. But you know, I do think there's an opportunity to make sure every American has access to care. So if they get sick, they're not afraid to go see a doctor. Um, and if they get really sick, they're, they're not facing bankruptcy. And I think we can do it in a more efficient way, lowering the cost of, of care and still delivering better better outcomes. Well, thank yeah, you. I Those would, are terrific. Yeah, terrific. Can I comments. follow up, Charles, about? Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is Larry. I'm going to follow up on the, uh, the telemedicine question. I don't think we I specifically uh, commented on that. I agree with you that it needs to be expanded. I'm, I mean, I'm not an early adopter of technology, but I'm not a late adopter, and I do think that we're behind a little bit in the healthcare space as it relates to telehealth. And I think it be, can be done better. And I think we can do just telephone access. I've got areas in my district, there's no broadband. We can't do, we can't do Zoom or Skype. So I just wanted to, I, I forgot to mention that, but, uh, yeah, but I yeah, do think thanks. we should expand it. Yeah, I think that's a deficiency right now based on what I'm hearing from a lot of the provider community. Um, and both of you talked about how healthcare you can't use a one-size-fits-all approach. And I'm reminded of what Tip O'Neill once said about politics when he said all politics is local. Well, all healthcare is local and is very deeply personal, too. And so uh, I'm glad to hear both of you keeping that sort of uh, uh, concept in mind as you look at the healthcare system. Let's, um, let's pivot a minute. Uh, let's look at what Congress and more bro broadly the government, U.S. government as a whole, uh, have been doing to support the healthcare system. Where are we lagging or falling behind right now in this immediate response? Uh, what could we do better? You know, in in my prior comments, I, I do think the the solo and small group practices are being hit especially hard in the rapidity of trying to save our economy and and you know keep the American citizens uh, afloat. You know, we pushed um, you know, in the first CARES bill $100 billion and you know, an additional $75 billion. Um, but I think for a lot of those smaller group practices, they were left to go through the um, Paycheck Protection Program um, and treated as small businesses. And, yes, they are small businesses, but they're also uh, slightly different than you know, your, your restaurant or, or bar. And I think in this I, I think there will be a, a next bill that, that we will start debating and discussing. And, and that's one area that I'm hearing from a lot of you know, physician groups um, and, and small providers. I think that's something that we, we, we've got to address in a, a more nuanced way. Larry, do you yes. think there's a bipartisan support for something like that? 
Absolutely. I totally agree with everything Ami just said. I think, you know, we we historically had a healthcare system and that, uh, you know, a bunch of entrepreneurial people went into, right? I mean, people that went to medical school or became nurses or did other things related to healthcare is because in certain respects, they had an entrepreneurial spirit and you had, you could start your own small business and you could you know, but I, what, I'll, what I'll call the Walmartization of the healthcare system has changed some of that, and it has left behind some of the, the smaller group practices or individual physicians who are in a small community, and it's, you know, Doc Smith on the corner type of thing that there was when I grew up, and I think we do need to focus on how do we, how do we make a system that works for everybody. If you have, you're an entrepreneurial physician and you want to work in a small community, you should be able to do that. You shouldn't have to necessarily get a job in, you know, in Indianapolis at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital as an employed physician. And uh, I completely agree with Ami. We we can do this in a bipartisan way that, that makes that, that dream come true again for people who want to actually be in small communities. I've got doctors, and I'm sure that Ami does, and I'm sure you did when you were in Congress, Charles, who say, look, I, I want to stay independent, but I'm not sure I can do it. And uh, and it's, that's been one of the aspects, I think, of what we've done in healthcare in the last 20 years has led to just dramatic consolidation in the healthcare space, not only in the insurer space, but in the provider space where it's been impossible for individuals to stay, uh, stay independent. And I think that's to the detriment of healthcare. I really do, because, um, uh, you know, a, a one, as Mom Amia said, one size fits all doesn't work for doesn't work for Sacramento, uh, the same things that work for Greene County, Indiana, right? So uh, we can do this. I, I believe that. Right. Charles, um, if, if, yeah, if I ahead. could add one, one other thing where I think we could work in a bipartisan way, and we've been spending a lot of time thinking about grad, graduate medical education, and we know we're going to face massive physician shortages um, in the coming decade. Um, we haven't changed the way we train physicians. Um, you know, we, we ought to take this as an opportunity to rethink um, graduate med- medical education, residencies, et cetera, how we fund that and how we actually train the next generation of, of physicians. And I think we have an opportunity to do that as well. Yeah, thanks. You know, one area of stress that's not gotten much attention broadly in the media is the, uh, not, only, not only the stress, the, there's immediate stress, for instance, on our healthcare providers, our nurses, our doctors, and others on the front lines, and supporting them uh, from a mental health perspective is critical. Uh, and then you have a broader mental health crisis that could be brewing across the country as well, uh, permeating because of the quarantine, economic losses, and everything else. I'm very concerned about this uh, overall. And you know, I saw that recent report about a young physician who committed suicide is so terribly tragic. Uh, I mean, you and all, all three of us understand the stresses day in and day out in practicing medicine, especially when it's a very busy time. But we all are aware of the, of the, 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 stre- the mental health stresses that this also puts on you. But to see a young, promising physician who was going day in and day out to the front lines, took some time off, went right back in after – uh, suffering from, I think, a brief spell of COVID, which was not too serious. And then she she just succumbed to the, the mental health strain and committed suicide. And I hope in Congress you all are thinking about the mental health side 
of the stress to our healthcare system, where we already have um, some uh, personnel shortages across the country, especially in rural communities. You know, Charles, so pre-pandemic, we already were seeing increasing rates of suicide um, in physicians, nurses, first responders, based on the, the stresses um, of the job pre-COVID-19. So I can only imagine post-COVID-19, um, or even as we come out of this, you know, if it was already on the rise in terms of physician burnout, physician suicide, um, first responder burnout, first responder suicide, coming out of this, that is only going to have increased. And I absolutely think that's another area where we ought to be cognizant and you know, have early warning systems so we can quickly intervene. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, uh, Charles. I mean, I, all of us know we were, we were practicing physicians. We know uh, the stresses of it, and we know we saw colleagues, both nurses and physicians, who were really, uh, for lack of a better term, stressed out and were, were struggling based on the, that situation. And I think one thing in the mental health space, at least uh, in the last maybe 10 to 15 years, um, there's been a little bit of a refocus, maybe people recognizing that. You know, the, as you know, the Congress uh, has uh, passed some legis legislation, including in the Affordable Care Act, uh, to, tr to create parity in in uh, mental health treatment versus uh, uh, if you have a gallbladder problem, for example, it, I think it's something we haven't done well. And I think w in the in the healthcare space, we're seeing um, we're seeing some of the ramifications of that. Um, but I also think the good news is out of this is maybe I think the general public overall, and I don't want to criticize the media, but I'll say the media re will will recognize, you know, what all of these people in the healthcare system are actually doing every day on behalf of the, the citizens in their communities. And, and you know, kind of like we've done with uh, people who have served in, in, you know, our country in other ways, you know, the, the things that healthcare providers all the way down from the, from the you know, from the uh, student nurses all the way through the physicians and everyone else, um, it will help them, you know, if if we, uh, uh, you know, we applaud them a little bit uh, and don't just make it during COVID-19, but let's recognize what people do for people uh, in the long run. Uh, and the other thing is, is that uh, telehealth medicine, I, I'm coming back to that, is going to be really important going forward in the mental health space, including for healthcare providers. Um, right. And, and I think that's one of the areas where we could really do better. You know, if you, rather than, you know, people, if you're a physician and you're under stress, maybe, you know, showing up in a doctor's office to be counseled is not the thing, but maybe you would benefit from, you know, uh, telehealth medicine. It might be a little more private. It might be something that you would be comfortable with because most people like us, physicians, are, you know, are, I mean, I'll speak for myself, you know, reluctant to admit our sometimes where maybe we've, we've been a little bit too stressed and, and that we maybe we need a little bit of assistance through that. Um, and so we'll see. I, I think uh, you bring up a, a really important point. Thanks, Larry. I, uh, Larry, you brought up issues about rural health care, um, which the district I used to represent also had a lot of rural communities uh, with small hospitals and clinics. Is there enough thinking going on 
uh, in the halls of government about our healthcare system being key critical uh, infrastructure um, and thinking about it in that way. I mean, I think the pandemic is starting to make people realize how important a good healthcare system is and, you know, having the capacity to deal with problems, scale up, you know, with a a big problem or scale back when when needed to to have surge capacity. I remember... um, you know, after dealing with hurricanes, I was worried about this, and I started thinking that if we had a big mass trauma situation in a community, I'm not sure any community is fully capable of dealing with that. And, of course, the pandemic, which is more pervasive, has unmasked a lot of that. Should we be thinking more about this rural-urban divide in healthcare and thinking about it more systemically as critical infrastructure? Yeah, I, I guess that's, that's directed at me. Um, the answer is yes, and uh, okay. you know, not to mention, not just, not as, not only as critical infrastructure, but you, as you probably know, the medical data supports this, right? The further you right. are away from a, a a hospital that can do a, a initial treatment, if you're having a heart attack, the higher your mortality rate. You know, the further you are from a, a a hospital that can do an initial triage and stabilize you from a, an auto accident, the higher your mortality rate. So right. I've been talking about this for a long time in Congress, that there's actual medical data, not just practical, you know, access. Well, I don't want to have to drive an hour to get to a hospital. That's inconvenient. But there's actual medical data to back up the fact that rural hospitals and communities are critical to the the health and welfare of of their community. It's not just about convenience and and travel and things like that. And I've been trying to get that across. So I would agree with you that, you know, it's really important. What have we done? We've helped some. We've propped the rural hospitals up with critical access designations and things like that. But I can tell you, talking to the administrators of rural hospitals every day, they're they're still barely getting by. And, uh, you know, something something like this that's took away their elective procedures uh, even temporarily, is just devastating. One hospital I talked to said they had one week's worth of cash uh, to, for payroll, and then they're done. I mean, they, 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 they're going to need some help, you know, and they unfortunately are getting some support. Um, but, yeah, I think we do need to think of it uh, more like that. And as I mentioned earlier, the Walmartization, that, nothing against Walmart. I'm just using that, comparing how the big box stores changed the the mom and pop store to the big box store in healthcare that's happened, but in healthcare there's real people's lives at stake here, and so I think we should take a, a really hard look at it. And right. Charles, if I could just play off of yeah, sure. um, Larry, I, I I absolutely agree with what he said, and and I think some of this is just the consolidation that's taken place within the the, the hospital and healthcare um, health insurance industry um, with publicly traded for-profit companies. I'm not against folks making a profit. But the problem is, um, you know, urban care is more lucrative. They're going to make more money. Rural care costs a little bit more, et cetera. So if their sole focus is that that profit, um, and if they're publicly traded, there's a lot of pressure on that. And, and I think that consolidation in the healthcare space um, is something that we ought to address in a, a bipartisan way, because I, I do think it's incredibly important that, you know, this not be driven by profit but be driven by outcomes and and you know again if you want sacramento you're going to have to take rural northern 
California as well. So I don't know exactly how we legislate that because I don't want to mandate what that looks like, but we do have to think about rural America slightly differently. Um, yeah. But, but it, I want to cover one more question um, before we close out. Uh, so, Ami, you co-chair the study group on Korea uh, that FMC sponsors. Right. And, uh, Larry, you just assumed the co-chairmanship for the Japan study group. Uh, so both of you uh, have a, a, an, inter- an international focus in addition to your healthcare focus. Other countries have responded. Some have done pretty well to COVID-19. Others have struggled with it. Um, but any, what lessons can we learn? Uh, what's worked well? What's not worked well? Whether it's Korea, Italy, you know, Japan, so forth. Yeah, thanks, Charles. I also um, chair the subcommittee on Asia and the Pacific. So we've been right. in dialogue with Singapore, um, the, the the Koreans, uh, and others trying to to have lessons learned. Um, I think a, a, a couple key takeaways. If you look at Taiwan and um, uh, the Republic of Korea, who have weathered this fairly well. Um, they both were hit by SARS and MERS um, earlier on, and I think there were lessons and systems that were put in place um, in preparation of a, a pandemic. Um, the United States, on the other hand, you know, we, you know, we didn't get hit hard by SARS or MERS or even Ebola. Um, so we didn't necessarily have those systems in place in terms of diagnostics, um, the public health workforce to go out and do contact tracing and so forth. And I think there are real lessons to be learned from the, the, the Korean response to this as we start to open up. And we are taking those lessons. We're you know, trying to build this public health um, workforce. I think you'll see that in the, the, the next bill that can be deployed um, to, as opposed to shutting down in, entire communities they'll go out, quickly identify um, a cluster, do the contact tracing, and shut down the cluster. Um, South Korea also rapidly stood up their diagnostic testing capabilities, um, and they did have the stockpiles to, to do that fairly quickly. That's also, you know, we're getting better at it. and We're you know, do, doing more testing, but as we open up more broadly, making sure every community has the, the diagnostic testing capabilities that, that they need. And then the last was yeah, they they had the personal protective equipment um, ready to go. So, you know, I I think the, those prior um, epidemics or pandemics hitting their countries put them in a place where they understood you know, that this was probably going to happen again. But I guess the last thing um, that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, if you look at the the, the Asian countries, um, and we know that the the coronavirus that's come to the West Coast came out of Asia, we know that the coronavirus that's come to New York and the Northeast came out of Europe. And, you know, it is really interesting to, to me to see how hard hit Europe and the Northeast was um, and how, like, it doesn't make logical sense to me that Japan and Tokyo um, isn't just a, a hot spot like, like New York because, you know, um, Prime Minister Abe has taken a, a bit of a laissez-faire. Um, people are still going to work. They didn't shut things down. Yet, you know, we, we may still see it in Tokyo, but I don't know if there's, you know, some subtle difference in, you know, were those cultural things? Were they, um, you know, there's a prevalence of wearing face coverings in Asia um, with no stigma attached to it. So those, just from a, a purely 
scientific perspective, I, th- I think we need to understand what the differences were because the West Coast, you know, while we had the virus circulating early, by and large has um, escaped what we're seeing in the Northeast. That's interesting. Yeah, interesting observation. Larry, do you have any comments on the uh, international side and lessons learned? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with everything Ami just said. He has his finger on that pulse. And uh, I do think it's fascinating from a medical standpoint what Ami pointed out about the differences between the coast and the U.S. and why New York has suffered so much. And I I think it, it, we would do ourselves right if we would, we would you know, look at the, if there's difference in the strains of uh, of the virus Um Compared, comparatively coming from Europe versus coming from Asia. I, I think, you know, the, the epidemiology of this and the, and the virology of this is going to be really critically important to understand uh, for, for the future. I, I think one of the things that the United States, what we, what we had to happen is, is I think we were, we as a country kind of are sometimes lulled into a false sense of security because we did avoid SARS and MERS and Ebola for the most part, but this was different. And, um, you know, we didn't learn the lessons that uh, South Korea learned with, with SARS, for example. Um, and, you know, our, our public health system, although structurally it is there, clearly wasn't prepared uh, from top to bottom for this to happen, even though that's kind of the why we have public health systems in place in the, in the first place. So, um, you know, totally looking at this from top to bottom and, uh and, and figuring out exactly where our deficits were is going to be critical. Well, thank you. I, um, I think we're at getting to the end of the allotted time we had uh, for this call. I want to thank both of you for your terrific insights, your tremendous leadership in Congress on these health issues. Uh, we applaud your efforts, and uh, I want to let you know that FMC stands ready to back you and to help in any way uh, and to augment what you're doing uh, to uh, advance these policy ideas. So thank you on behalf of FMC and all of our callers uh, for listening in on this uh, very terrific conversation and the insights that you guys provided. So with that, we'll conclude our call. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Charles.